good evening. Welcome, everyone. Those of you who are coming in, and actually anybody who's straggling out on the edges, you know, we invite you to come closer. You don't have to sit in ticketed seats for this portion of the evening. Again, welcome. I'm Mary Wood for the San Francisco Ballet Center for Dance Education. I'm absolutely delighted to welcome you to the War Memorial Opera House this evening. It's Tuesday, January 29th, 2013. Not sure how that happened. <clears throat> we are here to enjoy the opening night of San Francisco Ballet's 80th repertory season. And you may applaud. We all do know that San Francisco Ballet is the oldest performing professional ballet company in the United States, don't we? Yes. The um, Meet the Artist programs, which we are inaugurating again tonight, are produced by the Center for Dance Education, which is directed by Charles Chip McNeil. And the Dance, Center for Dance Education produces any number of programs for both children and adults. Of course, I encourage you to go to San Francisco Ballet's website, sfballet.org, <clears throat> where you can find out all kinds of information about what is going on. I want to call your attention to this week's activities tomorrow night in the War Memorial, in the Veterans Building, the Green Room of the Veterans Building, will be our first Points of View program. I'll be interviewing Mena Gilgood, who will be speaking about Sweet Homme Blanc, which is one of this evening's featured pieces. Back to this evening and opening night, it's an absolute delight for me to be with the team who has created the piece which will premiere, the world premiere on this evening's program, Borderlands. And so I'm going to introduce, starting all the way over there on your left, choreographer Wayne McGregor. Hello. This will be the third time San Francisco Ballet has seen a piece created by Wayne. The first two had been created outside and staged on us. This is his first piece to be set on San Francisco Ballet dancers. I want him to be saying more about that. Wayne is the artistic director of his own company, Wayne McGregor Random Dance, He's, which is the resident company at Sadler's Wells Theatre in London. He's the res a resident choreographer of the Royal Ballet is the first modern dance maker to be given that title. In January of 2011, I don't know if this is something we want to just shout to the rooftops, you were awarded a CBE, a Commander of the Order of the British Empire. And you know how Americans are with titles. <laughs> and then, um, let's say, next to Wayne is musician, Paul, Joe, okay, I was gonna get it wrong, okay. I know, Joel Cadbury, who is one of Wayne's creative team. In the center we have Lucy Carter, who is scenic designer and has worked with Wayne for 20 plus years. And then sitting next to me is Paul, Paul Stoney. So in this evening's, yeah, thank you. 
In this evening's conversation, one of the first things I'd like for us all to hear is, here we are, this, this large group, and oftentimes I only have a single person, talk about this collaborative approach. Wayne, if you'd start with how you create, where does the idea come from? Does it come from the music, from a design concept, from a movement idea? Tell us. Uh, hello, hi. Um, we thought it'd be really nice today to get um, all of the team here to have the conversation with you because I think so often um, in dance, which is absolutely a kind of a collaborative art form, it's all of the elements that actually um, communicate together to provide something of an experience that we're doing today. But I wanted just to say we've got one very important collaborator missing, and that's the German-born American artist Joseph Olbers, who um, was really the inspiration for the whole of this work. We're all fans of this um, work, and I'm sure many of you are familiar with it. And um, as a phenomenal uh, resource, we were able to go um, to the Joseph Olbers Foundation in uh, Connecticut and spend many days there with Nicholas Fobweber, who's the director um, of that foundation, his team, and be steeped in the archive of Joseph Olbers. So we were able to see lots of the finished work close up and spend time with it. And we were also able to see and have um, kind of privileged access to uh, his notebooks and some of his musings and this amazing kind of immersion in the work of that painter. And from that, all of this work that we've been able to do has grown. Um, it was fantastic. Well, one of my kind of favorite memories of that whole time was um, being in the archive room, which is an incredible space in Connecticut, and Joel having his computer there, trying some of his um, early sketches related to the Olbers paintings, and Lucy thinking about, likewise, what we were about to do. And it was a really phenomenal beginning to this piece. So um, that was the beginning. It was Joseph Olbers, a passion for that work, and how we might be able to invent a dance and a sonic world and a visual language, which didn't describe those paintings, but in some way allowed us to experience them in a different way, allowed us to be kind of inside them. So they were inside them from a physical point of view, a kind of a sonic point of view, and a visual point of view. I'm curious to know how the music and the scenic design um, layer into your movement ideas, knowing that from what we've read, and you'll see their excellent program notes in your booklet, um, you take inspiration from visual design. The musicians are creating the music, you're creating the movement, and which one, which, this is chicken and egg, I guess, although there are three parts. Um, do you care to say which one comes first? Well, well, I think we don't see them as that separate. I think we, f we find that they're part of the same conversation. And what was fantastic about this process is we were able to um, work with almost like cells of sonic music, of pieces of music. So we started to develop some very small objects of music that Joel and, and Paul will talk a little bit more about in a minute. Um, and then I was able to take those into the studio and work with them and, and respond to them and feel how they might work. And then we were able to dialogue about how they might change or might be developed or stay exactly as they are. And we were able to back, back and forth between these mediums. And in a way, that's exactly what we've done um, with Lucy. Lucy's uh, primarily a lighting designer, incredible lighting designer. Um, and she also had this idea about kind of pixelating the body. So it's cells of light 
that we'd be able to, in some way, uh, generate a new way of looking at the body by kind of atomizing it, making it into smaller little units. And um, I guess for me, the choreographic aspect of that is very interwoven. But I'm going to pass over to Joel and see what he wants to say about music. Thank you. Hello, everyone. Um, I think Wayne started it off very well talking about sonic architecture and objects because I think that was possibly our starting point. I think those of you who know Joseph's work, um, he uh, would be creating objects. And I think with Albers, the more you see, the more you want to see. And I think it's all about creating individual worlds that somehow dovetail, sometimes very harshly, sometimes seamlessly, and how we can kind of deal with interaction of color, and sonic, but musically. And so it was a very open brief, really, but to have such a wonderful source material, Paul and I found it um, very inspiring. And uh, I would like to say thank you to Nicholas Fox Weber and everyone at the Albers Foundation for completely opening up the archive and allowing us to really immerse ourselves in it. I'm so fascinated by the fact that this visual art was so inspiring to musicians. That it's just, and then you've talked about sonic architecture, sonic architecture. Um, how do the two of you musicians work together? Paul, uh, how do we work sure. together? Yeah. Yeah, well. how, how have you collaborated in this enterprise? Well, Usually we have one composer. <laughs> yeah, I, th I think Paul and I have been working together for a couple of years and I think that the, the type of uh, things we were making were, well, some might not call it music, some might call it something else, and I think it's all about um, finding a, a language in which to, to put everything in, and I think it, it's not one thing, and, and for us, the collaboration is where it becomes an interesting project and something that is inviting to people. We're always bouncing ideas off of each other and trying new approaches. So we'll compose maybe some lines of things and then we'll try and process and, and, and create something that wasn't there originally. You'll, you'll start to hear things that are on the edges and I think Joseph Albers would often talk about the after image or talk about the way that you can see something or the way that colour plays with things and, and you take away the main bulk of it and what you're left with is something quite interesting and quite abstract and I think that's where, you know, it's a lot of back and forth and it's a lot of us sitting and with these finite details just trying to, you know, make things fit and make things work. It's time for Lucy to chime in. Oh, I was just going to say something interesting about the collaboration is that Joel could have a sonic idea and he would explain it to Wayne and myself and then I would go away and think, well, how can I do that in light? And because they're so different, because sound and visual are so different, half the time you can't, but by thinking about it and exploring how you can do that in light, you come up with something equally as interesting. I can then feed that idea back, which then might inspire Joel to think, oh, well, I'm going to try that in sound. So that's how you constantly collaborate and move backwards and forwards. And coming back to Wayne's point about how more closely linked things are than actually they might seem. Um, so he would create certain objects and 
it would come back to us and it would become apparent where we need to push or pull. Um, because for us, we're dealing with something that doesn't actually exist yet. And so it's, um, it's a very interesting process. And, and you go up a lot of alleys that might not lead you somewhere, but I think actually the combination is here and, and now. Okay, Wayne, you wanted to say well, something before I, I guess, ask you I guess I would just say something. I think it speaks to this idea about what are the hierarchies of making dances. And so often, and there's no problem with this, but so often dances come out of a particular piece of music. So the music is already written, and there's in some way some kind of response to music. And that's a phenomenon. We know, we've, we've seen and all experienced some phenomenal pieces of dance that have been made in that way. But I think increasingly over the last 10 to 12 years, we've been very interested to see how it is that you... Um, subvert or disrupt those hierarchies so that actually at a particular point in the performance it might be a sonic lead it might be music and light that leads body it might be body and light yeah so the actual kind of combination of options um, is really different and of course that makes demands on the audience because the audience have to um, kind of navigate their way through this piece in a way that perhaps they don't normally in dance and I think that's one of the very refreshing things hopefully about watching a piece like that that actually whereas sometimes you might not react well or have a, an empathy with the music there might be something of the, of the physical language that you bear a connection with at one point perhaps where the movement language is irritating or something that you feel is distancing, there might be something about the color palette that actually draws you in. And so I guess it's something about how is it that in um, making these dances which float on these liminal states or these uh, boundaries of um, uh, vibration, I do this because it's a, like, a, like an oscillation, that actually all of these come in and out of focus. And I think that's a really fascinating way of making dances and also hopefully watching dances. When do the dancers get introduced to this creative process? How much of what you've talked about was, I don't want to say completed, but laid out when the dancers came into the picture? Well, I'm notoriously secretive, so um, you'd have to ask the dancers that. But I mean, I guess, you know, what I'm trying to do with the dancers is we're, we're co-authoring the language together. So it's not like I have a kind of an idea in my head of exactly what it is that I want to make, and then like a kind of a suit of clothes, I give it to the dancers for them to wear. And one of the wonderful and kind of really revelatory things about being here is you know your dancers. They, they have a phenomenal way of making you change the way in which you work. And that's so exciting and so refreshing. And so I guess one of the things that I found each day that we, we work with the dancers, I might propose something, but what they give back to me makes me make a very different type of decision for the next day. And so this iterative process, this process of variation has really kind of allowed me, I hope, to find things in the dancers that perhaps you don't or haven't seen before, but also have given me things to do with their physical signatures that have made me make different types of physical decisions. Um, and that way, I hope that you see in the physical model of the piece that actually the dancers move between lots of states of being. And um, it's much later that they uh, are introduced to the exactness of the other elements. You know, all the way through the process, I had Joel and Paul's music because I had lots and lots of different versions of the music that I would play as a kind of an improvisatory tool, if you like, as a resource for me to be able to make in. But I never fixed it on the music until I returned on this visit. I had, you know how your season works, that I had a, a making month in October, and then I had that luxury, which is very unusual in dance making, of having about uh, seven, eight weeks away from the choreography 
and then I had another three weeks with the dancers. And that's been a really lovely process to be able to look back at what you've made, see what the dancers have been able to do with that language and have been able to take it somewhere, and then make a decision about structurally what you want to do with it. And so there's something been very particular about that process that has changed the way in which we've been able to make this dance. I'd like to ask a question directly to Lucy. Um, those of you who remember Chroma might remember how stunningly light it was. And you produced that, correct? Um, when you have worked over these years using light as your um, artistic medium, have you enjoyed changes in technology? Have you perhaps created change in technology that um, it's interesting to ask about technology because actually in this piece we're using something that's a newer or is pretty new in terms of technology. So that's been exciting. Um, I'm not sure that I've had an influence on how technology changes, but maybe. Um, I just think it, it's an incredibly exciting thing, light, because it's so changeable and so emotional. So um, it's kind of a privilege to work with it and to have lit chroma because that provided a brilliant um what's the word a brilliant canvas to uh, play with light and i think this piece is similar i think this piece is similar in terms of how i've explored and experimented with light we've got this brilliant new technology that maybe Luz can talk a little bit about and what we've tried to do with it because it's taken hours and hours of programming <laughs> so her eyes are kind of cross-eyed from uh, doing programming in a dark room but it's really interesting I think to know how that kind of works. Um, so we're in this ballet we're working with LED which um, is taking over the world I think in terms of light for better or worse um, and we're able to program it in a very very detailed way. Um, it can You can pixelate the whole stage uh, with the light that's given out from the LEDs that we're using. You can put video through these lights, um, not to put an image, a television image on the stage, but to create new effects. Um, and you can, yeah, you can program a very small area of the stage. So it's been exciting and hopefully it pays off and it gives us a completely different quality to the light for the ballet. I think you can hear when Lucy talks about lighting, she talks a bit about it from not only a physical perspective, but a choreographic one. So she talked about how is it that you kind of shift focus when you're working with color? How is it that you get an emotional engagement through working with tone of color? How is it that you can um, develop choreographic principles through light? And I think that's one of the things that I always try to encourage um, from the collaborators, that there's a physical dimension to the work that they do. And I wondered if Joel and Paul had anything to say about that? Um, hmm. um, well, I think um, it, it's, uh, again, an emotional response to... Uh, it, it's a strange thing because, you know, we, we could imagine what we might be seeing, but until we're actually here and discovering each other, then that's the point at which it becomes something far more emotive. I think Wayne put it really well in a dialogue we had where, you know, the, uh, the eye can dull the ear and vice versa. And I think it's all about finding that balance and that's where the emotion lies. It, it's sort of in the in-betweens. Uh, I, I often find with music that's too overly 
happy or sad, it actually detracts from the emotion that it's trying to convey. I just also wanted to add, because you asked at what point do the dancers come in, and from my point of view, uh, I can have all the ideas and we can plan things, but until I get the dancers in the space, I've got nothing to like, because it's all about their bodies and the choreography that they're doing. So actually, for me, it's all the ideas that happen first, but I can't actually begin until I have those bodies and that choreography. And do those ideas begin to take place in the studio, or do you have to wait until you're actually on stage? I have to wait until I'm actually on stage. So the lighting comes quite, the actual lighting comes at the end. So Paul and I, over Christmas and New Year, well, we didn't really have a Christmas and New Year, we were there working away, but, you know, we had much more time leading up to this. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, we can sort of sit back and go, Lucy, how's it going? And she's frantically there because <laughs> this, is, this is the time to do it. So, it, so it's, a, an in, it's an interesting one for us as well, you know. We, of course, like to give you, the audience, an opportunity to ask questions of the artists. I, for those of you who came in late, it's been a pleasure so far to be in, uh, in conversation with choreographer Wayne McGregor, his team of collaborators, musicians Joel Cadbury, Paul Story, and uh, Lucy Carter, his lighting designer. Shall we ask if you have some questions? A hand went up, right over there. And could you, I'll, I'll repeat the question, but make sure I can hear it. Wayne, could you sort of summarize as you answer? <laughs> so it's a question about kind of, kind of um, whether or not I, there's a sense in which in the, the ballets that I've created before in a restage that there are archetypes that translate from one company to another um, and how much say I have in casting generally and what is different about casting um, here in San Francisco. I guess that's it for a new work. I guess um, when you've made a piece of work, you can't help but have the image of the dancers that you made it on burned onto your retina and in your consciousness. And um, it, because, for me, the dance comes from the bodies that I create that dance on, I can't help but having that kind of fascination with those bodies. And even though new bodies can take and shape that piece of choreography in a different dimension, I like to retain some of its essence in my casting. I always cast my own ballets, so if Chroma were to be elsewhere, I would always do the casting myself. So I go myself, I choose the dancers myself, and it's usually a pretty swift process. Um, yeah, okay, and... Okay, no, no, fine. So you can see that in the, in the choices. In making a new piece, of course, you have an opportunity to choose 
the dancers that you just love watching. And for me, it's not just the ones that move well or have fantastic bodies, these fantastic instruments that they all have. It's also those dancers that have an open curiosity to engaging in the conversation about the work. So it's not enough to have a great instrument. One has to have a great imaginative capability. And for me, that's very, very important. And um, so that's what has been fantastic here. I've been kind of spoilt for choice in terms of who to make for. But I think hopefully you'll see this piece couldn't have been made on another company. It might be able to be restaged now in another company, but it couldn't have been made on another company. And I'm sure you'll recognize things about the dancers that you love in this piece, and hopefully you'll be surprised by other aspects. One thing I always try to do when I'm doing a new ballet is not just work with the stars. And I always like to kind of have a combination of new partnerships, dancers that are very young, dancers that are very seasoned. And it, you know, you see something like here, we, I have you know, the brilliant Pascal, who is a very experienced dancer, and I have a very young dancer called Lonnie, who's, who in some ways is very raw, but I think the, um, the, the physical feeling of all of those bodies in combination is a fascinating attribute for the, for the audiences to watch. You know, it's kind of a, it's a wider microcosm of real life. Um, and I, I find that very exciting. And the second cast, what's fantastic about the second cast, we have a second cast which have their first show on, um, I think it's Thursday, that they also have a very particular character. And because I've had them in the studio all the time I've been making, some of their influence has kind of pervaded on the thing that happens in the front. And so I think it's been a very symbiotic process in terms of how those dancers have influenced and made this ballet. I say that we've, I talked to them earlier on and I really genuinely feel we've made this ballet together and it's as much mine as it is theirs. So if you don't like it, it's not all my fault. <laughs> Thank you. That was a very stimulating question. Thank you. I, we've just about time for one more question, and I hate it. I wish we could go on another half hour, um, but we're going to let you ask your question. Sorry. I think I got the question. Is it better to be in a certain section of the audience to experience it fully? Will we experience it differently in different parts of the audience? How would you answer that? I think you'll definitely experience it differently wherever you're sat. But I think you experience any live theatre differently depending on where you're sat. Um, I don't think there's a better up or down. I really don't. But it is different. It is different. I would say that I think it's, we, we've got ourselves <laughs> into, a, into a habit of watching where we think that dance should just have... You should come and watch dance once. It's a transitory thing. It's of the moment. And I think dance always benefits repeat viewing. And that's not just to try and get your cash. It really is, I think, from a structural point of view and really understanding language, it takes time to get familiar with it. And so I think my recommendation would be come a few times and sit yourself in different places and see not, not how it changes, see how it changes your experience of that object that's in front of you. I think Nicholas is, Nicholas is uh, here from the uh, Albers Foundation. I think he's... Sure. I'm, I'm Nick. Yes, I'm about to. Um, I'm, I'm Nick Weber, who gets called Nicholas Fox Weber sometimes, but uh, the director of the Albers Foundation, and I may be the only person in the room who had the good fortune to know Joseph Albers, and I want to say something on his behalf. Uh, in the year that is the 125th anniversary of his birth, um, that, first of all, this feels like a birthday present to him. Uh, a wonderful 
celebration of his values. He was the most passionate teacher at the Bauhaus and Black Mountain College and Yale University and a number of other places. And he used to say to his students, to follow me, follow yourselves. The other thing he would say is sit on your own behinds, which was his other way of saying that. And indeed, you have done, you've fulfilled his dream because you're, you haven't imposed yourselves, you've responded to the beauty of things, to light and movement and dance, uh, the way that Joseph did, and the spirit of collaboration, the way you've worked together, to me epitomizes the, the dream of the Bauhaus. Uh, so, great congratulations. Um, you know, one of his finest students, Ruth Asawa, um, live, lives here, and he, he was crazy about her work and a um, big part of his legacy. Anyway, congratulations. Thank you, Nick. Thank you so much. Nicholas has, Nicholas has actually seen the ballet, I wanted to say. <laughs> you did actually see it. Wonderful. Uh, well, as I said before, I wish we didn't have to stop. We do. I want to thank my team here of conversation partners. I want to urge you all to return to our website, return to the ballet. I want to urge you to have a good evening. Thank you all so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.